If we want to think about girls' sports, we need to invest in the girls that are actually playing these sports. You know, the Mary Canes, but also the girls behind Mary Kane in the race. We need to make sure that we're protecting all of them. And I think that's going to involve, first of all, investing in science. A lot of the science that we do have is based on a boy's trajectory. It's different than a girl's trajectory. And then really educating coaches to understand how to nurture specifically a girl's athletic trajectory. And then finally helping girls at like understand what's good and what's bad. A lot of this pressure from girls comes from themselves. Like these are really good girls. These are high achieving girls. They know how to do what it takes. What they don't understand necessarily is what the stakes of that are. And that if they just ride out some of these challenges that are different than the boys or even some of the girls that they're competing against at any given time, they can come out the other side and maybe be one of those, you know, women in their late 20s or early 30s that are setting the national records, that are on the medal podiums, that are, you know, going to the Olympics and the longer distance races. But I think so much of that talent is actually getting extinguished uh, far earlier than it should be. If anything that's come out of this conversation, you know, around this stuff in recent days, if anything comes out of that, I hope it's that, that like you can excel without hurting yourself. That's Lindsay Krauss. And this is the Rich Roll Podcast. The Rich Roll Podcast. Hey, people, how's it going? How you doing? We're all alive and breathing, so that's good, I suppose, right? All I know is that every day presents opportunity. And when I can step into that mindset... I get a tiny chance of dealing with whatever obstacles are in front of me. Life, man, we're all living it, right? Did I introduce myself? My name is Rich Roll. This is indeed my podcast, so settle in and let's get things rolling. Today's episode is, I think, the perfect extrapolation on the important themes that we explored in my last conversation with Lauren Fleshman, uh, the advancement of women in sport, fairness, athletic parity, and, uh, and straight-up girl power advocacy. Our cipher for today's masterclass is Lindsay Krauss. Lindsay is a producer, editor, and writer at the New York Times. If you've been paying any attention to running news the past couple of years or just big headlines in general, then I would imagine you're definitely already familiar with Lindsay's work as she has broken some of the biggest stories in recent memory. Some of her most popular pieces include The Shalane Effect, which she wrote about Shalane Flanagan and the elevating effect that she has had on other women. Lindsay broke the piece about how Nike does not guarantee female athletes a salary during their pregnancies or immediately after giving birth. She produced the piece in which Allison Felix told her story around Nike and pregnancy, and she was responsible for the bombshell Mary Kane op-ed entitled, I was the fastest girl in America until I joined Nike, which is all about the abuse Mary suffered under her former coach, Alberto Salazar. And, uh, and that piece landed as the 42nd most read piece on the entire New York Times for 2019. In addition, I'd like to add that Lindsay also worked with last week's guest, Lauren Fleshman, on Lauren's November New York Times op-ed entitled, I Changed My Body for Sport, No Girl Should. And that is a must read for everyone, especially any and all female athletes out there. I'm super excited about this. I've really wanted to talk with Lindsay for a long time, and I can't wait to share this conversation with all of you. But first, let's acknowledge the awesome organizations that make this show possible. We're brought to you today by Momentus. 
Over the last 16 years, I can safely say that I have tried almost every single plant-based protein out there. And I can tell you that most of them are highly processed with tons of additives and or they taste terrible, they're not third-party tested or simply just don't hit the nutritional bullseye with a legit science-supported formula with the appropriate amino acid profile that promotes optimal nutrient absorption, which is all just a long way of saying how enthusiastic I was to be introduced to Momentus's 100% plant-based protein, which solves for all of the above and then some with a precise blend of pea and rice proteins, which yields a complete amino acid profile, tastes great, and has become my go-to to ensure my body is supplied with energy for a proper recovery and function. Momentous products are simply the best in the industry, which is why they're used by over 90% of NFL teams, by Olympians, Tour de France champs, and world-class athletes across every sport. With all the BS in the supplement world, I trust Momentous's industry-leading quality standards and quality. Try Momentous for yourself by going to livemomentous.com slash richroll for 20% off plant-based protein and all of their top-of-the-line products. That's L-I-V-E-M-O-M-E-N-T-O-U-S dot com slash richroll for 20% off. We're brought to you today by On. I am a total gearhead. I love researching the latest technology for the sports I enjoy. And I've learned that people often overlook apparel. But what you wear isn't just clothes. It is, without a doubt, technology. Technology that can make or break a performance. And I can tell you, after spending two full days meeting with the apparel wizards at On Labs in Zurich, that On is innovating in this space like no other with next-gen premium fabrics and just this heightened level of sophistication and precision and testing and development and intentionality previously unheard of that puts them just miles beyond the competition. I've been rocking On's high-performance running apparel, including the long tees, the weather jackets, even the climate jacket, all super lightweight, tailor fit, built to move, and just gorgeous to get you out and get it done in fleet foot comfort, no matter the weather. I'm super proud to be a brand partner with this impressive team. From increasing product sustainability to improved energy return and impact protection, truly Swiss innovation at its finest. To get you moving, On is offering an exclusive 10% discount. To redeem, head over to on.com slash richroll and use code richroll10 at checkout. We're brought to you today by a very exciting brand new sponsor, Go brewing. I am sober. I don't drink. And I devoted so many episodes of this podcast to the unreal benefits of an alcohol-free lifestyle. Why? Because even if you don't have issues with booze and suds, no amount of alcohol is good for you. At a minimum, it wreaks havoc on your sleep and produces a hangover that destroys your energy, your mood, and your focus. At worst, it turns your whole life upside down. But no longer does that mean you have to break up with your favorite brew because my pals at Go Brewing are making all your favorite brews, minus the alcohol, fewer calories, and more productive tomorrows. It's not every day that I 
get the privilege to witness the inception of a company collaborating with our podcast, but that's exactly what happened with Go Brewing. I'm gonna tell you this story. A few years back, I spoke at this event in Illinois, fittingly named Go. And it turns out that that very day catalyzed Joe, the founder, to start his own NA beer company, Go Brewing. I had no idea about any of this until I bumped into Joe at Jesse Itzler's Running Man event the other month in Georgia. And he shared this story with me. I savored his fare in all its varieties and deeply moved by the mission and what he shared with me and just impressed with the insane taste and quality of his alcohol-free concoctions, I wanted to help share the discovery. Made with natural ingredients, faithful to traditional beer styles, Go Brewing has an impressive lineup of delicious, small batch, craft, alcohol-free brews, all without added sugar or artificial processing. My favorite is their double IPA, not just another story, but Basically, you just really can't go wrong because everything they make is brewed to perfection, worthy of trying yourself, which you can now do at gobrewing.com. That's gobrewing.com and use the code RICHROLL for 15% off your first purchase. Okay, Lindsay Krause. A couple other really interesting things about her. In addition to breaking these gigantic stories, she's also a super fast runner. She recently clocked a blazing 253 marathon, which she was preparing for when we did the podcast, which was back in mid-October amidst all of these crazy stories that she was breaking. It's an unbelievable feat. Uh, Another part of the job at the New York Times uh, that Lindsay is involved in is producing opdocs, including the fabulous one on New York City runner Memo, which you guys should check out. We talk about that today. And Walk Run Cha Cha, which just received an Oscar nomination last week in the documentary short subject category. So Lindsay first came across my radar several years ago uh, when she popped up in my friend Casey Neistat's vlog. And I thought, who is this really fast runner that writes for the New York Times? So I started following her way back then uh, before a lot of this amazing work on female athletes has uh, come out. And I'm just delighted to have the opportunity to sit down with her. So today we dive deeper into many of the issues discussed with Lauren around women in sport. We go behind the scenes on the Mary Kane, Alicia Montano, and Allison Felix stories, Nike and its relationship with pregnant athletes, the controversies swirling around Alberto Salazar and the Nike Oregon Project, why almost all current sports science is based on men, and harmful coaching approaches to girls and women in sports. And of course, we go into Lindsay's personal story, what makes for a great journalist, great journalism, what it's like to work at the New York Times in our post-truth fake news culture, and how she manages to absolutely kick ass and running while also being at the vortex of breaking these huge stories. I can't say enough good things about Lindsay and the amazing work that she has been doing. So again, it was an absolute honor and pleasure to sit down with her at the New York Times during a visit to New York City last fall. So this is me and Lindsay Krause. Well, pleasure to finally meet you. Absolutely. Great to meet you, Tim. I've been really inspired uh, by the work that you've been doing for a long time. So this is delightful. I'm in the New York Times for the first time, which is very exciting for me. Yeah, thanks for coming <laughs> I don't know back. about for you, but uh, it's cool to be here. And um, you know, I've been spending a lot of time trying to wrap my head around like what you do and and what it means. And I think 
what's so compelling about the work that you've been doing, particularly recently, is that you're not only breaking these really important stories, these stories then go on to have this life of, life of their own. Like there's been some really viral moments, um, which has to be very gratifying for you as a journalist, but also beyond that, it's not just, oh, we caught lightning in a bottle. Like these are important pieces that are creating conversations and then even beyond that, I think it's fair to say are, are really um, um, creating a, a, a power shift, like a shift in the power dynamic of sport that is empowering women to not just reevaluate and rethink their relationship to sport, um, but to seize the reins of control and power. And you're seeing this community kind of congeal and coagulate around these ideas, at least online. And I know in real life, in, re in the real world, and uh, it's kind of an incredible thing. Yeah, I think it's been really, it's been surprising, frankly, to see just how much traction these stories are getting, not only among the athletic community, but kind of in the broader public discourse. I don't remember the last time the you know, a politician was tweeting about a track and field athlete right. um, or a marathon runner and like really wanting her to get, you know, maternity coverage or to have a coach be nice to her. Right. Um, I think right. like, you know, decrying abuse yeah. that in so many ways, so many of these stories are, um, they're so tolerated. They're so almost normalized um, that they, they do just feel common. And it's amazing mm -hmm. to kind of see, to kind of give the opportunity to some of these women or young women um, the chance to say, this happened to me. This is my story. What do you think about it? And mm -hmm. the rest of the public is saying, actually, this is awful. This is wrong. We don't want this to happen to you. And I think that's been really important. I mean, people say all the time that athletes you know, need to use their voice. But I think the first step is kind of recognizing that these rules weren't made for you um, and you've been following the rules and you've even been thriving in, in these, um, you know, in, in this paradigm that, that has certain rules, but ultimately they weren't made for you and you want to rewrite those rules. Mm -hmm. um, and that's what these women are doing. And I think it's been amazing to see all the public support they're getting for that. Yeah. I mean, it's one thing to say you have a voice, use it. And it's another mm -hmm. thing for that voice to show up on the pages of the New York Times. It really validates mm -hmm. that that voice has merit and, and should be heard. But I can't imagine that, that you, even in your wildest imagination, that a story you know, about you know, Mary Kane, who's somebody that, unless you're you know, immersed in track and field, mm -hmm. you have no idea who this person is, um, would connect so profoundly with a mainstream audience. Yeah, and I think that's really where I felt a lot of responsibility with her story. You know, I was telling I work I work with um, a bunch of men here in my department, and they they didn't know who she was. Um, mm -hmm. I I was old enough to be her older sister. I think um, you know definitely knew who she was as she was coming up in high school. I was already working, but I'd already kind of gone through the NCAA. I knew what all those systems were like, and she was an exciting person to watch. But I think a lot of athletes, um, you know, faster athletes than me, but then also someone like me is like, oh, we know how this story tends to go. We don't always know the details of why, but we've lived our mm -hmm. own lives, and you know, it, we all have kind of no, very few athletes. You're lucky if you've just had, if you're a female athlete and you've just had kind of like a straight shot and been successful the whole time. I yeah. think that can happen for men more, but it rarely happens for girls. And I think when we did see Mary, um, you know, leave Nike, I'd always wondered what happened to her and not in like a, oh, I forgot about her. I, like I'd 
actively wondered about that a lot. But when she told me her story, I wasn't surprised um, because it tracks so closely with stories that a lot of um, female athletes and, you know, women, whether you're an athlete or not, have experienced on some level. Um, Mm -hmm. But I I did feel a lot of responsibility of taking the details of her story, many of which were not that surprising and kind of translating them to the general audience and saying, look, you need to care about this um, and we're going to we're going to show you this and then you can be the court of public opinion. Right. And it was amazing to see that people cared about that. The story, her story is outrageous, but it's also representative of a story that so many women have lived. Yeah, undoubtedly. Um, well, for people that are listening who perhaps might not have read the story, it, it probably would be wise to kind of set the stage or contextualize this a little bit. Um, sure. So Mary Kane was um, the fastest girl in America, uh, which is how we had her open the piece. Um, uh-huh. This was back in um, sort of the early aughts. And so she was the fastest girl in America. She was setting so many national records. And she was sort of like the darling of the track scenes. She was mm-hmm. supposed to be our next Olympian. Alberta Salazar, the best coach in the world, on the best team in the world, by the best company in track and field in the world. Al- Alberto Salazar, the coach at Nike of Nike Oregon Project, he called her up when she was 16 and was like, I want to coach you. And it was a dream come true. Um, and I think that's what's so important to remember. She was living the dream that Every every high schooler athlete wants to have um, that every parent wants for their daughters, and that's why we had to kind of get people really excited about her rise, mm-hmm. so then they could understand why her ascent, her why her descent is so um, so striking and so important. Um, she went out to Nike and. She was 118 pounds, um, kind of varying between 118 and 121. This is at an age when girls are, you know, fl- like flush with estrogen, which is a performance. Um, uh, it's not a performance-enhancing uh, hormone by any stretch. Um, it's g- having girls, you know, gain a little weight. They're right. getting their periods, et cetera. Um, and meanwhile, boys are getting – they're, like, kind of oozing testosterone, which is a total performance-enhancing um, hormone. And um, her coaches are telling her, you need to lose weight. She's 118 pounds. She needs to be 114 pounds. And um, – they're not telling her how. They're not telling her how to do this safely. And um, so she starts, you know, trying to lose weight, however she can think of. Um, and she loses her period. And that's when the injury set in. Um, this is what happens to girls when you diet too much. Um, you lose your period. You Your bones start to break. Uh, your body starts to break down. And ultimately, um, she started um, engaging in self-harm, um, suicidal thoughts. And uh, she had to leave. And she has spent the past few years with dealing with that injury cycle of broken bones. And it's awful. Um, And what's particularly awful to me is that, you know, there are other athletes in the past, like Melody Fairchild, for example. These are all like the best girls in the country. And we just assume that that they they burn out and we don't think about the idea mm-hmm. of what certain coaching approaches are doing that incur that actually cause that burnout instead. Right. And this is this is in plain sight. Absolutely. You know, it's not it's un, it's different than doping scandals because there there isn't even an effort to obscure it because it's sort of systemically accepted yeah. as protocol. Yeah, and I think that's what's so important about her story broadly is that it really shows that we need to start thinking more about if we care about girl sports, which so many conversations right now are establishing that apparently we really care about the future of girl sports. I do. It seems like a lot of people do. 
it's not about necessarily some of the other conversations that I think are distracting from that. Like, for example, transgender athletes. Like, those mm-hmm. are very separate conversations. If we want to think about girls' sports, we need to invest in the girls that are actually playing these sports. You know, the girls that – the Mary Canes, but also the girls behind Mary Kane um, in the race. We need to make sure that we're protecting all of them. And I think that's going to involve – First of all, investing in science. There's not a lot of the science that we do have is based on a boy's trajectory. It's different than a girl's trajectory. Um, And then really educating coaches to understand how to nurture specifically a girl's athletic trajectory. And then finally helping girls understand what's good and what's bad. A lot of this pressure from girls comes from themselves. Like these are really good girls. These are high achieving girls. They know how to do what it takes. What they don't understand necessarily is what the stakes of that are. um, And that if they just ride out some of these challenges that are different than the boys or even some of the girls that they're competing against at any given time, they can come out the other side and maybe be one of those, you know, women in their late 20s or early 30s that are setting the national records, that are on the medal podiums, that are, you know, going to the Olympics and the longer distance races. But I think so much of that talent is actually getting extinguished uh, far earlier than it should be. I mean, the the changes need to be systemic top to bottom, but there also has to be this perspective shift in that we need to pivot away from this idea of, you know, short-term gains and, and you know, kind of operating like a publicly traded company operates, yeah. which is on quarterly profits. Like mm-hmm. that's all, that's as far as your vision extends. Um, and look at the long term, like the, lo- the, the what's in the best interest of that athlete over the course of an entire career. And, you know, look, as somebody who, who you know, I'm, I'm older, I'm from a different de- generation, but I've been around sport my whole life. And it wasn't until kind of sitting down, I sat, I had Lauren Fleshman on the mm-hmm. podcast recently and then reading her op-ed piece that I know you were instrumental in, in helping put together. Um, am I starting to realize like the vast differences biologically with women with respect to this, uh, this, this estrogen cycle? Like, this, mm-hmm. like with men, it's like, it's a linear progression of getting better and better and faster and faster, right? That's kind yeah. of like the paradigm. And with women, once you reach your late teens and your early 20s, you, you have these body changes and then changes later in your 20s that you know, put you in a very different place. And, and better understanding that is what's required in order to really, you know, have that best interest at heart for these girls. Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, there has been a lot of scrutiny on Nike after the Mary Kane story. And in some ways, the response has been a little disappointing because it's like, I don't think it's all about just having an investigation into the abusive practices of coach Alberto Salazar. I think this is, again, he was just doing what a lot Mm -hmm, of men do, what a lot of women do, because a lot of the women that you know, make it to the point where they're a coach have come up through the system as well and had to endorse it um, or at least survive in it um, to the point where they don't necessarily see anything wrong with it. If they see something wrong with it, they would leave probably. And I think it's it's um, kind of perhaps studying some of this stuff and actually saying like, you know, for Nike, a multi-billion dollar company um, to actually say, we're going to be a leadership um, uh, force in this. Um, Like we started the girl, we were um, a big backer of the girl effect back in the day. Mm -hmm. Um, We were marketing our our shoes off that and really inspiring girls. What if we follow through and actually fund some research? Um, How much money would that cost? Not that much. And the the optics, but also the outcomes, I think, would be really yeah. powerful, and I'd love to see that. It seems like such an easy leap. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't understand why that's so difficult for them to wrap their heads around. Like, when I look at 
the pregnancy leave issue, which we can get into in more detail, um, on a on a revenue, uh, you know, on the on the revenue tip, like it's nothing for them to support these women throughout their pregnancy. And when I first came across the story, I thought, well, this must just be an antiquated clause that's just been in a contract forever, and nobody, mm-hmm. you know, took the opportunity to go, hey, maybe we should change that. Yeah. Versus, um, you know, like just that kind of support would pay dividends a hundredfold because of just the storytelling potential alone about that support. Yeah, I mean, I think especially when, what really struck me about that is that you do have athletes and you have had athletes like Kara Goucher, Alicia Montano, who Uh um, what always struck me about what they managed to do was that they came back better. Um, They still came back and won medals. And I think that was amazing. And what always bothered me was that, you know, I'd, I'd kind of known what they were going through a little bit back at, back at the time that they were doing it. And it was, um, you know, I hadn't fully investigated it, but um, it always bothered me that it was like the hardest part should be winning. The hardest part should not be fighting your sponsors for the chance to do that um, or feeling like you belong in the arena at all. Like those should be the things that we are um we should be paving the way for women right. to try this. Um, we should not be punishing them for trying. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why, you know, Allison Felix was a, was a big source on that story, obviously didn't feel comfortable um, necessarily sharing her story in the vulnerable position of having just had a newborn and being in the middle of a contract negotiation. But um, I think that really resonated with a lot of people that, yeah. you know, I'd reached out to her because I thought um, she was going to be the person that said, as you did, that it was probably an antiquated um, clause and that um, I was like, surely Allison is getting whatever she wants. Um, and the yeah. idea that she too was having to fight and feel um, feel like the hardest part, in addition to, of course, the you know, coming back from an emergency C-section, um, uh, it, it was fighting her sponsor for the chance to do that. And I thought that was so sad. It is. I mean, what a... Uh What's even more kind of like amazing and courageous and powerful are are the current athletes who are now speaking out. There's this woman, Tiana B, yeah. who wrote a blog mm-hmm. post. She's currently sponsored by Nike. Right. And spoke out against her sponsor. Like I can't imagine like that's that's like a very ballsy thing to do. Yeah. One thing that was really amazing about um the maternity coverage in general and that's been great about seeing kind of the dialogue around, you know, abusive tactics, because again, the idea of abuse is subjective. Like the idea of rights are subjective. And when the story around so we did two pieces around um what we called dream maternity, and it was sort of an answer to um to the Dream Crazy campaign, um, which again it was it was just calling out contradictions between marketing and reality uh, in video form and through the voices of athletes themselves who were you know unfettered by they were breaking their NDAs basically to talk about it and um, I remember after we put out the piece with Alicia Montano and Kara Goucher who were kind of older at, like they they were no longer sponsored by Nike when they talked about this although the NDA still applied I had a few women who were more recently sponsored by Nike that called me and they were like you know actually I didn't have a bad experience with Nike like I was fine so I just really want to tell you that um even though maybe the company isn't binding itself to support me they supported me um and I'm very grateful and I was like well thank you for your feedback and then Allison Felix um we shared her story a week later and I got so many calls back being like, wait a second, I didn't know I had rights. Like, Mm. I didn't know I could get this and that I didn't have to be, like, grateful for it. And I thought that was what was so important, that um, it really is women almost, like, realizing that what they feel lucky to get 
is actually maybe something that they should get. And again, then maybe they can just focus on winning instead of fighting for the chance to do that. Yeah. In the process of of putting these stories together, like the research and like kind of legwork that goes into it, um, how difficult, like what was the the process, the journey of of getting these women comfortable to talk about their NDAs. I mean, that's a very dicey thing. Yeah, it was really hard. I think in retrospect, it looks like it all um, uh, was exactly the way we premeditated it for, or uh-huh. that we planned for it to be. Um, uh, it was a lot of work. I mean, if you talk to Alicia, who was kind of the first person to say, I'll do this, um, it's a really emotional thing for her to talk about, and there's a risk. So, yeah, I basically like wrote, I had to, and the challenge for me is that you know, I'm taking all these emotions and all these feelings, and that's not what we're doing. What we're actually doing is showing some facts um, and showing the audience, like, this is what happened. This mm-hmm. is what the current situation is. So you have to sort through a lot of this really dense, like, this is someone's entire life and their family. Um, and that's really hard, but you can't overwhelm the audience with um, too much. Uh, mm-hmm. You really need to kind of signpost for them, like, this is the story. This is what happened. Um, and so I think we were really sorting through a lot of that a lot of that um, emotion to try to tell an objective as as objective story as possible with a little bit of opinion mixed in right. um, so that was hard and then with Mary it was sort of the same thing it was like okay so here's your experience um, we need to catch an audience up who doesn't care about track who has no idea who you are um, uh, and help them understand all of these different things um, in a very quick way that kind of gets straight to the emotion. Um, but but the emotion only matters if you understand the facts. Mm-hmm. And so that's what, that's what we were trying to do. Right. So on the, the pregnancy maternity story, did that come to you or is that something that you were tracking down or paying attention to? Like how did uh, that originate? Yeah, I wouldn't say that anyone that participated in that was particularly excited about doing it. Yeah, I mean, I can imagine. (laughs) Yeah, it was a lot of trust. um, And I was really grateful that the women did wind up trusting me um, because I did feel like I was trying to get them. I was stirring up something for them that they really didn't want to think about. um, And, you know, trying to ensure them that I could get people here to invest in it to the point where it would be worth it because they're taking on a huge risk. Um, and I didn't know if people were going to necessarily care about this or not. Um, but so that that was a story that um, originated probably back in 2014 when I was um, – I just wrote a story for our sports desk here. Um, I've always been a producer in opinion, but mm-hmm. since I'm a big distance runner, um, I've always – you know, I see what's around me and I – I always wanted to kind of write the stories that I wanted to read. Um, And so a lot of my friends, maybe like four or five or six years ago, were starting to have kids, um, sort of like the first wave of that. And a lot of them were really good runners. And we were kind of watching, I was watching everyone do this. And I was noticing that they were coming back and sometimes being like faster afterwards. Uh And I was really excited about that. And it kind of mirrored. Um, what we were seeing certain elite athletes do, like Kara Goucher, for example, was following in the footsteps of Paula Radcliffe. And everyone was kind of touting like, oh, this is so amazing. And so I wanted to write a story where I was like kind of showing the trickle down that continues to really excite me about American women distance runners, where you see, um, 
you see like Kara doing this um, in the New York City Marathon. And then you see all these other women um, doing this as well, mm-hmm. even though they don't have sponsors. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I interviewed Kara and Alicia at that time. And I, I was like, so like, what's the hardest part? And they're like, well, the physical part is hard. And then they were like, well, off the record, like we don't get paid for this at all. Right. Um, like, don't print that. Um, right. So I think I printed a really broad sentence about it, um, it you know, with no, no attribution. Um, and no one cared about it. So everyone was like, wow, this is amazing. Like these women are doing great. Like uh-huh. no one was worrying about the other parts. So I was like, okay, this <laughs> isn't in- we're getting paid. Like it's not interesting yeah. to anyone. Um uh-huh. and then, you know, as I got older here and I'm kind of watching other stuff here, like I have this um Boston opinion, Adam Ellick, who was like, okay, you do all this stuff in sports, like you know this really well. Like good things come from things that people are passionate about. So why don't you move the needle on some issue here in sports, like in a way that you care about? And I just remembered kind of that line from Kara Goucher and her agent Shanna Burnett. And I was like, I'm gonna see if that's still true wound up being a lot harder than mm-hmm. um well I knew it was gonna be hard and it was really right. hard. You can't just be like, hey, send me that NDA. No, no not right? at all. Um like, is it some kind of like all the president's men situation yeah. where you're in a parking garage and somebody hands you a manila envelope? Like <laughs> you know how no, did that work? It, um I had some agents show me emails like in front of me um and I could take a picture with them like with my camera phone right. and um so that it wasn't it wasn't traceable to anyone else. Um because I mean, again, I'm totally sympathetic to the idea that um, this may not be the biggest political issue to people in the entire world, but these are people's lives and people's families. And Nike is a very litigious, multi-billion dollar corporation. Like people, I was extremely sensitive to the idea that um, people were scared of that company. Um, Mm -hmm. And it sounded like they had every reason to be, which made me need to be even more diligent um, Mm -hmm. to back them up. And so um, by the time I actually had emails from people decline from you know sports marketing executives at Nike declining to um, put paternity maternity protections in writing um, into a contract I was like well this was sent three weeks ago so right. um, so we have it's this still happening yeah um, but that that was a really long kind of connect the dots of how do I figure this out how do I figure this out how, who do I talk to who won't go back to the sports marketing executives and tell them that I'm doing this um, and then they somehow undermine the story or gag everyone from talking to me yeah. um, you, you just don't know uh, and I'm doing it all here from New York so it was like kind of all right. like late night conversations with people but given the fact that you slipped it into that earlier story and no one seemed to comment on that you must have thought that you know you're rolling the dice with this yeah. larger story about it like is anyone going to care mm-hmm. yeah and i mean Kara goucher was like fine you can quote me but could your lawyers also please defend me if i get sued by this company um yeah. And we can't do that here at the times. Um, all we can tell, all we can tell an athlete like that, like a, a fairly vulnerable person up against, you know, a company like Nike. All we can say is that if Nike sues you for exposing that they didn't pay you for how, however many months um, while you were working for them um, because you had a baby. We can put that on the front page of the yeah, New York Times. It, that it's I can a do. Bad luck, yeah, but you know. but I can't tell you. Technically, that they won't do they're it. within the rights to do that. She breaches. She breached the NDA. Yeah, right. uh, of course. Yeah, um, and I I was worried about that. I really didn't want these women to get sued or suffer at all for kind of exposing their truth. Um, yeah. And ultimately, and it was hard too because they kept being like, you know, we might do this, but nothing will ever change. And 
I don't I didn't know if anything was going to change. Um, right. All I could do was get the story out there and see what happened. But then in August, John Slusher, an, an executive vice president of marketing there, did send out a memo to all athletes saying immediately um, you were covered for 18 months. No yeah. performance related. Produ- I mean, as a, as a journalist, it doesn't get better than that. Yeah, like, that was that's tremendously like satisfying. Real world change as a direct result of your reporting. Yeah. And I think. What was what was even most important to me was the symbolism of it. Um, it's this idea that all the ways that women are struggling or kind of know that they can or can't do something and they're almost like changing their behavior around these rules. It's like, instead, why don't we change these rules? Mm-hmm. Um, and I love that the times can be a part of that um, in terms of being the force that might, you know, get Ivanka Trump and um, liberal senators to both call out on Nike and say, you can do better than this. I mean, the next best step would be to maybe change some actual laws because all of this is totally legal. And I'm not sure that it should be up to an individual company to decide whether women should be able to have children and still support themselves. But failing that, it's really exciting to see that the Times can be a part of actually getting people excited about these issues that A, no one wanted to talk about in the first place or didn't feel comfortable about, and B, that people weren't necessarily going to care about unless we kind of told it to them in the way that um, was really going to resonate. Yeah, I think, you know, the fact that Nike and Salazar are woven into all of this kind of makes it sexy for a lot of people, but it's myopic to just perceive this through that lens. Like it is a bigger, it's a systemic thing, right? Like, you know, I came up in swimming, Hmm. my high school girlfriend was being sexually molested by my swim coach since she was 13 years old. And she was like number two in the world, a 200 butterfly, was meant to make the Olympic team in 88 and fell on her face at trials because she was emotionally traumatized by this. And it kind of came to light what was happening. By that time I was already in college and this was like 1986, Mm -hmm. no, 1987, 1988. And, uh, And it was settled out of court for a paltry sum. It was a different era. Uh, And then it didn't come to light until much, much later because the Washington Post cottoned on to the story and knew something had happened and wouldn't let it go and finally got um, Kelly to speak on the record about it right on the eve of like that Olympiad. Hmm. And then he went went to jail, but like this was like, took like 20 years for this to get sorted out. And so I guess my broader point is that I grew up around, like, we all knew who the swim coaches were who were doing this kind of thing. So whatever Salazar did or didn't do, like, this is going on all over the place with all kinds of coaches in all different sports. Yeah, and again, I can't emphasize enough that what's going on with Salazar there was totally legal. It's like, there's nothing... No one's ever said that there was actually something wrong with what he did. It's done by so many people. It's not sexual abuse. Um, And I think it's really, really important that we expand our definition of what's right and what's wrong Mm -hmm. um, to kind of open it up to other things like this, um, like this emotional abuse, like, you know, like almost forcing a girl to change her body to the point where she's breaking it. Um, these things are also bad. And I think it's, I'm, I'm really heartened by the idea that people are finally starting to come around to that. Yeah. Meditation has been a recurring theme on this podcast, dating back to its beginnings. 
and in conversation always leads people to asking me about the best way to begin. There are no shortage of modalities of resources and apps available. I have experience with many of them, but my mainstay, I have to say, the one that I have found most useful is waking up. It's this unique treasure trove of wisdom that has become so important to my daily routine that the app finds itself right in the dock of my phone for immediate fingertip access. Beyond its robust catalog of daily meditations, it's also this extraordinary library of mindfulness resources that go well beyond the strictures of meditation with courses on stoicism, cognitive behavioral therapy, time management, procrastination, as well as thoughtful conversations with leading scholars on everything from psychedelics to happiness. It really is one of the most worthy investments you can make in yourself. And listeners of the show can get 30 days to try waking up for free. Plus, you'll save $30 on the in-app price. If price is a concern, Waking Up offers the app for free, astonishingly for anyone who can't afford it. You can find the links on their website to get a full scholarship right now. Just go to wakingup.com slash richroll to start your free month today. That's wakingup.com slash richroll. We're brought to you today by recovery.com. I've been in recovery for a long time. It's not hyperbolic to say that I owe everything good in my life to sobriety. And it all began with treatment and experience that I had that quite literally saved my life. And in the many years since, I've in turn helped many suffering addicts and their loved ones find treatment. And with that, I know all too well just how confusing and how overwhelming and how challenging it can be to find the right place and the right level of care, especially because unfortunately, not all treatment resources adhere to ethical practices. It's a real problem, a problem I'm now happy and proud to share has been solved by the people at recovery.com who created an online support portal designed to guide, to support, and empower you to find the ideal level of care tailored to your personal needs. They've partnered with the best global behavioral health providers to cover the full spectrum of behavioral health disorders, including substance use disorders, depression, anxiety, eating disorders, gambling addictions, and more. Navigating their site is simple. Search by insurance coverage, location, treatment type, you name it. Plus, you can read reviews from former patients to help you decide. Whether you're a busy exec, a parent of a struggling teen, or battling addiction yourself, I feel you. I empathize with you. I really do. And they have treatment options for you. Life and recovery is wonderful, and recovery.com is your partner in starting that journey. When you or a loved one need help, go to recovery.com and take the first step towards recovery. To find the best treatment option for you or a loved one, again, go to recovery.com. What is the meaning of life? What happens when we die? What is our purpose here? If like me, you ponder these delicious existential questions, I have got just the thing for you. It's called Soul Boom. It's a podcast hosted by everyone's favorite best friend and my friend, the deep thinking and deeply hilarious Rain Wilson, where he communes with intellectuals and entertainers, theologians and philosophers in intimate exchanges that tickle the mind, heart, and yes, the soul. 
Subscribe to Soul Boom on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. There was a very interesting tweet thread that I saw um, recently in the wake of your story uh, by Stuart McMillan, who's a prominent track and field coach mm-hmm. and, and strength coach. And he kind of just said, like, look, I'm saying this, you know, I, I want to ask this in, in good faith. Like, is there, is it ever appropriate to talk to a female athlete about weight? And it kind mm-hmm. of created this thread. And I think, he, you know, I'm giving him the benefit of the doubt. Like, he's really, he wants to know, like, what is the answer to that question? Understanding that, that weight is a factor in performance and the solution can't be that we can never even bring it up. We just have to find better ways and more educated ways of navigating the vicissitudes and the the kind of um, you know uh, emotional landmines that this creates for young women. Absolutely. I mean, I don't really have a an, a strong answer for that either, aside from what you said. But I do think I do think two things. One is that what you said about education for for coaches is really, really important. I think in the case of Salazar, it's pretty clear that it wasn't va- it, what he was trying to do. This arbitrary 114 number was kind of grounded in his own beliefs, not yeah. in any sort of science. Right. It and wasn't so, rooted in anything yeah, tangible. Or- yeah. And I think that's what, that's a real trouble with what, with, with what a win at all costs culture sows, um, with like letting almost like megalomaniac, uh, cult, uh, cults of personality dictate what the outcomes as opposed to science. Um, so the first thing is education and making sure that coaches are making educated decisions as opposed to just kind of like personal preference decisions and imposing those on their mm-hmm. athletes, that's really harmful for athletes. But the second thing, again, is I think um, uh, improving the science and really making sure that whatever science we're drawing upon, we've, we're clearly just at the tip of the iceberg when it comes to a woman's athletic uh, or biological development in terms of what we understand and how it relates to athletic outcomes and potential. So I think we really need to be studying that more if we're serious about the future of women's sports. Right. And more women coaches yeah. and more women uh, owned, you know, apparel company. Like, who are the people who are in power who are making these purse string decisions about the athletes that they're going to support? And what is that? What does that climate and dynamic look like? Yeah, I think if we're going to get actually serious about women's sports, um, we need to have more women. We can't just have women participating in those sports. We need to have women in positions of power in those sports that connects to coaches, that connects to um, administrators and officials. That also connects to women telling their stories. There are almost no female yeah. reporters in sports. I mean, we should really be thinking about that as well. Um, yeah, I think, is it like 4% of sports stories are about women's sports? Yeah, and that has to be because of the reporters. Like, I mean, if you, there, how many stories are there about baseball? Well, it's baseball and football and yeah. basketball. Which is important, and but hockey. I think I think actually, I mean, my, my dream in terms of like what a what a great career legacy would be for this this stage of my career is almost to go back and people tell me this is unrealistic but 
America was really captivated by track and field back in the Steve Prefontaine era. Um, like that was kind of the dawn of the sponsored runner in the first place. And everyone was so excited about him and what he represented. And I'm wondering, you know, at this stage, especially as we see, like with the series that we're doing at the Times Equal Play, people are really talking about the sport now, um, yeah. in part because of the women that they're listening to and how we're highlighting what the women are going through and accomplishing in this sport and disrupting in this sport, how that can Next to the rest of our culture and our society. And I'm like, what if we actually put women front and center in this coverage um, of the sport? Could we get Americans to care more about this sport, which I love? And that's really um, influenced my life drastically in ways that I could have never anticipated when I started doing it. Um, I, I mean, if you look at how fast the American women are um, from the professionals on downward now, there absolutely has been a trickle-down effect in terms of um, women getting faster and faster. And I think Americans should be looking at this more um, and really getting fascinated by this. And I think like I am living and breathing this right now. Like it's half of what I think about. I'm sure my bosses are thrilled about that. Um, <laughs> and I just I wish that we could um, be telling that story more and getting more Americans um, excited about the, about well, listen, that and then the sport. For, all right. Well, w- the wish is being fulfilled, Lindsay. Because I got news for you. Like this is happening. Like, and you're a big reason why it's happening. Like, we're having this amazing moment in women's track and field and marathon running. I don't think there's ever been more mainstream interest in these incredible athletes than there is right now because of the performances, you know, with Des Linden and Shalane and mm-hmm. these incredible marathon performances. Um, and then all of the kind of social and cultural issues that swirl around this that is, I think, you know, really um, uh, uh, like, gluing this community of women together, which makes them all the more powerful and interesting to the public as well. Yeah. I mean, I think that's also been a really cool opportunity here at the Times is that think all these people necessarily all these women necessarily knew each other ahead of time like for dream eternity they weren't connecting to each other about yeah. this it was really just me kind of being like i need a voice i need a voice i need a voice will you talk about this and not everyone would but some people would and those were the women that we wound up being able to showcase um to the times audience as a chorus and it was mm-hmm. so much more powerful with all of them together and then you know, Alicia spoke and then Kara spoke because Alicia was leading the story. Um, so she she felt secure in telling her story. Then Allison spoke because she saw the reaction to their story. And then when I was talking to Mary, she was like, I want to do what Allison Felix did. You know, Mary grew up worshiping Allison, obviously, like everyone, everyone Mary's age, um, the most decorated track athlete of all time, speaking out about something beyond the track that was actually influencing her and changing something. Mary was inspired by that. And I think that's been really amazing to see that we can do that here at the times. We can um, be a forum for changing some of the yeah. stuff and bringing women together. And then seeing Shalane come out, you mm-hmm. know, as this newly minted coach yeah. um, who's trying to, you know, shift this culture. And, you know, she didn't mince words and she was very clear about the changes that need to be made and what her aspirations are. And then Lauren Flushman's op ed. Like mm-hmm. these are like, you know, these are like big moments. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think I think Shalane's reaction to the Mary story was really powerful. I've I've always been really impressed um, as an athlete and a journalist. Um, but particularly as an athlete, you know, I've watched Shalene and what she's um, done for her teammates in terms of, um, you know, 
almost being like a, a career catalyst for these teammates and making them really successful, like a 100% success rate of getting her, um, the athletes that she's trained with, to the Olympics. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you could say that's their coach, Jerry, but it, they don't have the same success rate for the men um, on that team. And so you could really attribute the success of that team to Shalane. And I think... Um, it's easy to um, to cheer for the positives, and I thought that it was really, really strong of her, um, especially when she was just kind of anointed as their first um, female coach, which is really yeah. exciting for the industry. But it was it it impressed me so much that she spoke up and said, "I don't want this to happen anymore." Yeah. And I think cultures evolve and cultures change, and um, it sounds like she's really trying to be um, someone that moves that culture in the positive right. direction. On the Mary Kane story, Mary approached you for yeah. this, right? Yeah. As, as, as sort of on the heels of seeing your other reporting and feeling like this is the person that I need to go to to share this with. Yeah, so I didn't know her. Um, so we we had to kind of work together to think. It was hard. Like At first, she just kind of wanted to do it fast. I was like, no, I think we really want to spend some time on this. We don't want to bucket it with any other marathon coverage. It was hard for me because I wasn't sure how much people were going to care. Um, but I wanted to take the time and really invest the effort in um, – figuring out how we could do it in the biggest way possible that would get Mm -hmm. the most eyeballs. I wanted to have it be her telling it in her words, ideally on screen, um, because I think that's by far the most powerful way to tell that kind of a story. Um, And that kind of thing just takes a little bit of time. So uh, we, we were working on it for, I'd say maybe like six weeks or something. Um, I'm really glad that we waited and that we didn't do it along with other news. But I think it was psychologically difficult for her um, to to wait, knowing that she wanted to, as soon as, I think it's like as soon as you yeah. decide you want to get something off your chest, you want it gone. Um, right. But I think in the end, it was, the payoff was worth it. Oh, for sure. I think what's interesting is that, you know, I, I would imagine a lot of people are under the impression that you're just a full-time writer on the sports desk covering track and field. And it's actually not your main gig. Like you're, you're at Opdocs, right? Like producing video is like kind of your main, that's your main gig, isn't it? Yeah. The main part of your job? Yeah. I mean, I think my story tracks um, pretty closely with a lot of the women that I write about and that, you know, I came here as an assistant yeah. um, maybe like eight years ago. And um, I was told at the time that it wasn't a position where um, there was a path to promotion. Um, but I, I'd been working for Jody Cantor before that, um, just like helping her as a researcher on her book. She's the woman that wound up breaking the Weinstein story, um, right. kind of starting the Me Too movement. And she's a real feminist and uh, I, I, I'd worked for other people before and no one had ever been like, here's how you can get a job, which is kind of what you obviously want when you do those kinds of things. Yeah. And so she helped me get one of those jobs here. And um, I was just like, okay, so there's a two-year expiration date on um, on how long I can be an assistant here, um, and I got to start got to start now. Um, and so I just kind of started doing everything I could to get promoted. So um, Opdocs had just started. It was right when the Times was um, getting more. Um, uh, more experimental. Before that, the institution had really been sort of, you are this, and you can only write this way. Right. Um, and so I've always been kind of like scrappily trying to figure out how can I um, get the things that I care about into this paper in as um, in as visible a way as possible, but um, without necessarily having like the full-time role there mm-hmm. um, and doing that. And so I started freelancing for the sports desk um, a lot, but 
was kind of at the same time getting promoted in Opdocs, this short documentary series. It's very like kind of festival oriented. Like yeah. we do have a lot of Oscar films, a lot of Emmy films. Um, so I'm doing that. But then at the same time, like building up this body of work about the sport that I really care about and also seeing that A, there's an audience for it. Like people really care, but B, they're not really getting done in the, they're getting done, but not necessarily in the way that I would do them because mm-hmm. I've really lived these stories. I've lived Mary's story in a, in a certain way. I've, um, at some point, like, you know, I, I've, I've watched my friends experience the maternity thing and um, listen keenly and think about what, how that might influence my yeah. own life as I move forward. I think you want women telling these stories about yeah. women. I mean, my sense is that you're, you follow your curiosity. It's not like, oh, here's the story, like go report on this. It's just what are you interested in? And then continuing to pull on that thread until, yeah. you know, something is revealed. Yeah. I mean, I, I think I've often had a skill at translating very specific stories about about something very niche, like running, for example, which I think people sometimes will say, oh, it's just running. And I'm like, well, you're only saying it's just running, first of all, because I'm, ta- I'm writing about a woman usually. Um, and you're not maybe seeing like how I'm getting to like this bigger idea. Um, but I always look at it as a challenge of like, how can I take something about running and make it something that, you know, Kamala Harris is right. going to tweet about um, or that someone will find, you know, in, in inspirational and surprising and challenging. And I think that's what I tend to love about the sport. And it's actually, yeah, it's been an amazing creative challenge and a, and a real pleasure to get to share it with others. But, yeah. but no, I'm not on the sports desk. So when a story comes to you or you're developing it, what is the decision tree in terms of like, this would be good for an op doc or this is just going to be, you know, an editorial, a long form editorial piece? Like, how do you decide, like, this is one we want to tell visually? Um, so none of the, none of the things that I've done for Equal Play have been Opdocs, actually. Opdocs is a series of short documentaries by independent filmmakers. Uh. And so I'm more the curator of that series. Um, and again, those are the kinds of films that we're sending to the Oscars or to right. the Emmy Awards. Um, it's, it's something different altogether. Um, what I've done in Equal Play is actually out of this new um, opinion video franchise at the times um, in opinion and um, that's started by Adam Ellick who's like the executive producer and then on these videos I've worked with um, Tage Jensen, Ch- Tage Jensen um, Alex Stockton um, Naima Raza just like really really smart uh-huh. um, video producers here and um, for myself I um, I think what we're doing in opinion video is actually a, a fascinating new form of journalism that it's been a real pleasure to kind of help pioneer and spearhead. Yeah. Um, I think more stories should be told in video. It's yeah. only a matter of resources. Um, and I think hearing something from someone, um, especially when they're breaking news, has been um, – you, you can't substitute for the written word. Uh, I, I'm not a writer here in opinion, but I do write – from time to time. And I think those stories are more just the ones that like I come up with on my own. And I'm just mm-hmm. like, this needs to happen now. But when, when it's someone else's story, I, I don't think there's any substitute for telling it in their own words. Yeah. Who is the, what's the name of the guy uh, that uh, is the super fast amateur? That, memo? Yeah, yeah, Memo, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> like so, that's perfect for I video. Because when, you, like you watch that video and you fall in love with this guy, well, right? It was and it wasn't perfect because... Um, we had to really script around him. Um, uh, English is not his first language. And it was, that was a fascinating creative challenge. This was a video about a, um, a Mexican 
immigrant to America who came here undocumented, I think like back in the 90s, he crossed the border and um, started to seek his fortune in New York and, you know, worked a bunch of sort of uh, working class blue collar jobs and always very scrappily and at the same time became a runner. He was a bad runner back in like Pueblo where he's from. He like was not good on the track team at all. Um, But somehow when he got here, he flipped a switch and, you know, never with any particular amount of resources, but he got really, really good. And he just ran a a 228 at Boston this year, which is, um, I think it placed him like ninth in the world for the majors rankings. And so, Uh you know, I'd I'd like found out who he was and I was like, okay, so I don't want to just do like the, here's this guy story. Um, I want to, I want to see if we can almost like feature him, especially right now, because there's such a debate around immigration. I'm Mm -hmm. like, wouldn't it be funny to, not funny, wouldn't it be important to, um, to have a formerly undocumented immigrant who makes almost no money teaching us, um, us being Americans who, you know, have relative privilege compared to him in many cases, um, times, times readers, times viewers. Um, what if he taught us how to succeed? Because yeah. that's not the narrative that we're seeing all yeah. the time. Ours is more like a, should we let them in? Should we not? It's not like, oh, what can we learn from them? Why should we respect them? And how are they beating us? Um, and I think those stories are hard to find. But when you do, they, um, I think they really surprise and yeah. delight people. Well, it's absolute gold. I mean, he's yeah. just, you know, stripped down, like basically a menial laborer mm-hmm. who has no resources whatsoever mm-hmm. and just does it for the joy of it and is just about the basics, yeah. right? And yeah. it makes you realize like, oh, everyone, what watch should I get? And the new running shoe review and all yep. of that is just nonsense. Yeah, which I relate know? to. I mean, I don't yeah. have a ton of money to spend on um, tech either, yeah. um, but and that's what, part of what I like about running. Uh-huh. It's like, you can be making, you know, like $30,000 like I was when I first graduated from college and you can still run. Like no one's gonna yeah. kick you off the roads or out of the park, um, it was great. But yeah, that was an example of a, a great collaboration here in the department where I just have this, I have this guy and I have this idea and I want to somehow comment on like Fitzbo culture and about some of like the performative excesses of, um, of exercise and working out these days and about how, like what I love about running, which yeah. is like getting out there and run. So I have this guy and I'm like, he doesn't think any of this necessarily. Like <laughs> he does, but he's not going to like deliver an oral argument about right. it. Um, so I'm like, how do we do this? And so again, my colleague Naima, who goes to a lot of boutique fitness classes and is a genius, um, I got her to start thinking about this. And then um, Max Cantor, who also made the Dream Eternity video um, with Alicia, which mm-hmm. um, again, he like conjured the emotional rhetoric of a Nike ad. Like, that's really cool. Yeah. Um, and um, then Tage Jensen, um, another producer up here, like he had a, he had a video reference for um, what, what could inspire the the concept and like with all of our minds it it turned into that um and it was like yeah. the most popular item on the on the New York Times for for forever and i was like oh, it's wow. such a pleasure to to again have a formerly undocumented immigrant um at the front like effectively on the front page of the New York Times for a weekend um for something really great like something yeah. that he accomplished as opposed to like a hardship that he's yeah. endured i think it's also emblematic of of the beautiful running culture of New York City. Mm-hmm. Like you you go running in Central Park and there are people running in there that are for real. Mm-hmm. Like you're like, wow, that those people are real runners. Mm-hmm. And it's incredibly um, ethnically and, and socioeconomically mm-hmm. diverse. Yeah. And, and there are these running clubs, like isn't that part of your story too? Yep. When you came here and you yep. kind of fell into one of these clubs, like it's, it's very working class and egalitarian and, 
and you know bonded by just nothing more than like this shared love of running yeah. and performance and community yeah you know? and i also love i mean there are all these races here and it's like it is people from all over and like all different backgrounds who are doing really well in these races yeah. and i think memo and his team the west side road runners um the west side runners they are really representative of that like you don't hear from them very often like partly because a lot of them english is not their first language um and i don't think they're on facebook and instagram the same way right. that you know a, a, a different demographic might be um but they're doing so well and we need to hear those stories too because just like we can admire does Lyndon or shalane flanagan um we can admire these people too for for other reasons yeah 228 is no joke yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. Know, it's unbelievable. I, I found him i found that really impressive and i was like more people need to hear about this too yeah how is mary kane doing now I would imagine like, you know, the spotlight on her has got to be super intense. And my sense just is is that like, she's kind of not hiding, but just keeping a very low profile while this conversation is happening. Yeah, she's done, she's done a really great job. Um, I've been really happy with how she's um, managed to conduct herself because there's so much stress there. And I don't think she's particularly media trained. Um, the night before we finally released it, I, I felt so bad because I was like, I don't want to tell you that this is going to be really widely read because it might not be. Um, mm -hmm. But if it is, you need to prepare yourself um, because I know when we did the dream maternity for, for example, with Alicia and with Allison, like it was a lot, but, but yeah. they were older and they had, yeah. I'm not a team, but they had more people to help them, I think. And um Mary didn't really have anyone, so um, she didn't tell her agent she was doing it. So, oh, um, yeah, it was like it was pretty. I think she was just like getting forward at all of these things, but had no one to help her navigate any of the media requests. So I was trying to help her, but that's also not appropriate for me to be like, you know, actually telling her what she should or shouldn't. I shouldn't be advising her. Yeah. Um, I was just trying to help her um, navigate some of that stuff, and she was keeping it together really well. Now she's got Alice. I have connected with Alice and Felix's mm -hmm. brother. So now he's representing her and he's really savvy, Wes Felix. And um, so I'm actually going to talk to them in like an hour and I'll, I'll probably hear more. Yeah. So I first, I think you first came across my radar. It was several years ago. Um, and I think it was because you popped up in Casey's vlog. Oh, you yeah. you go running with Casey. So yeah, yeah, I'm yeah. friends with Casey for a long time. Oh, awesome. Um, and, uh, and I'm like, who is this really fast runner who works for the New York Times? So I like, I think I started following you on Twitter a long time ago. So this is before like all these big stories yeah. were happening. And so I, did you, like Casey did an op doc, right? Yeah, like, about, yeah, like that's bikes actually, being stolen or yeah, something like that. So I was like, I they must've met that way, yeah. Yeah, um, I met Casey, yeah, that would have been like seven years ago or right. something at this point, maybe yeah. eight years ago. I He texted me for my birthday this year and I um, Facebook had brought up a, a really old picture of us from like 2011 uh -huh. or something where he brought a birthday cake to an Opdocs event for me because it was on my birthday. And I was uh -huh. like, oh, you're always, you're you're just such a loyal, kind friend, like he, thoughtful he friend. He very much is that. Yeah. yeah. And I, he's moved to LA now and I, I really miss him because I, I really loved running with him. Um, there would often be times where I'd be running on the West side and then like some guy, I, I'm oblivious when I run um, and some guy would like turn around and start running with me and I'd be like oh it's Casey like, yeah. and now I'm going to be asphyxiated because he's so fast right. and I can't breathe um, but yeah he's um, he's an incredible runner and um, a wonderful friend I have this habit um, before he moved that every time I come to New York you know a couple times a year and I just you know I get up whenever I get up because of the time change and then I go run along the west mm -hmm. side and I would say like 
maybe like seven out of 10 times I would run into him. Like I, yeah. I don't plan to go running with him, but I'll just, I'm like, oh, I'll bump into him. Yeah, you know? yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. Because yeah. he's running all the time yeah. or whatever. But now that he's in LA, I haven't run with him once because he broke his collarbone. Yeah. So I still have yet to like hook up with him for yeah, that. Yeah, that's so sad. No, it was funny. It'd be funny to like turn up on his blog because I would not say that I'm camera ready in the <laughs> <laughs> I'm but not he's always person. like very complimentary about your oh, running. Oh, totally. You yeah, know? yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, you you merit that because you're super fast. You're getting ready to um, – uh, well, the goal is to run an Olympic trials qualifier yeah. time for the marathon. I, I'd i always – I mean, so my, my best time is a 2.57, um, and that was a six-minute PR that I ran last year. I also had, like, the cycle of injuries or whatever, came out of it, mm-hmm. and then it was almost like – you know, I had maybe like four years where I kept trying to get like faster and faster. And each time I get an injury and an injury and it would be awful. And then suddenly I realized I wasn't even trying anymore. And I was really sad about that. And then it was almost like by letting go, I was like, why don't you just try to make a starting line? And that was maybe three years ago or something. And I did make the starting line, but I wasn't doing anything like fancy in terms Mm -hmm. of training. And I ran my best time ever. And so I was like, oh, this is amazing. I can do this again. And so then I'd always wanted to break three hours. And um, last year I did break it um, at – at, at CIM, California International Marathon, and which is almost like it's it's such a runner's race. It's it's very um, – there aren't a lot of professional runners. There's not a huge prize purse. It's just people that really love running and yeah. are trying to run as fast as they it's can. In Sacramento? Yeah. It's, yeah. Uh, it's amazing. And um, – and people are traveling from all over the country. It's mostly Americans. It was a really, really positive feeling. So I did break three hours then. I ran a 257 last year. And that was a six-minute PR. So then I thought maybe I could run another six-minute PR this spring and then another six-minute PR this fall. Um, unfortunately, I got injured right away. And instead of forcing it, I was just like, how about I do some of this work here <laughs> um, yeah. and actually like cover this like this, this stuff that I wanted to cover and write about running if I can't run. Um And then I finally started training in July and I started to get faster and faster and it's been amazing. Um, But then actually it was around when I was doing the Mary Kane stuff um, and covering the New York City Marathon, like the memo video. There was a week where I think I only ran like 40 miles or something and um, had to drop out of a workout and I was going to just like drop out of the whole thing. Yeah. Oh no, we'll I missed see. one workout. Yeah, I definitely have that kind of personality. <laughs> yeah. You know. I don't know if I can tow the line at the race. You know, I, I missed that one workout. Yeah, this guy, um, I don't know if you know Mario Fraioli, but he's I do. Um, yeah, he um He put he you just did a podcast with him that he put up. So I texted okay, him yeah. and I was like, I can't believe you beat me to Lindsay. Oh, I'm funny. going to see her this week. Oh, funny, yeah. funny. Um he's really great, but um you can always tell what my state of mind is for better or for worse. I'm sorry for anyone who follows me on Strava, but how I post on Strava and just how existential it's getting. Um, and there was some workout where I dropped out and um, I was like, I just really need a coach. Cause I'm like trying to do my track team's workouts, mm-hmm. but I'm also doing higher mileage. Cause that's how I get faster. Yeah. And he um, texted me. He was like, Hey, I'll help you. Um, and just like kind of advised me a little bit. And then when I had to drop out of these workouts, like more recently, I was like, maybe I'll just do Philly or maybe I just won't do anything he's like how about you just relax <laughs> yeah <laughs> and like <laughs> just, just calm it's down it's gonna be yeah. okay yeah yeah i was like my, my poor fiance is like <laughs> you're so neurotic so that race is in a couple weeks then right yeah, yeah yeah so that's in um that's in two and a half weeks now so i what is ha- the what is the trials qualifier it's time? 617 and that's gonna be a stretch for so me so that is to 
What does that come out uh, Oh, to? sorry, 244.59. 244. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, but it, it's amazing to see how many women are doing that. And I just thought, again, it's like you watch everyone doing these crazy things. Like a lot of us weren't that good in college, like, but we're getting better now. And it's mm-hmm. like, why don't I just go for it? And what's the worst that can happen? I fail and either totally fail or run a PR. Um, and so now I'm, I'm hoping I can break 250, which would be just unbelievable. Yeah, so I'm going to Philly exciting. this weekend and I'm going to try my, my race pace has been all over the place, so right. I'm going to see if I can get some detail. There are certain rare people who have a powerful voice and know how to use it. My friend Amanda Decadene is one such human. The podcast is called The Conversation because it is the conversation a groundbreaking series of raw and honest exchanges on the issues that matter most. Mental health, sex, politics, ambition, gender roles, and more. Listen to The Conversation wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. I'm super proud to announce my next venture, Voicing Change Media. This beautiful consortium of thinkers, storytellers, artists, and visionaries all committed to fostering meaningful exchanges and sharing thought-provoking content. Voicing Change Media will feature shows like The Proof with Simon Hill, Soul Boom with Rain Wilson, Mentor Buffet with Alexi Pappas, Feel Better Live More with Dr. Rangan Chatterjee, and The Conversation with Amanda Decadene. You can explore this network and all its offerings at voicingchange.media. So you ran in college, you ran at Harvard. Yeah. Yeah, cross-country and track? Or yeah. just You did? Yeah. Uh-huh. And, and you were like, what, like, what was your relationship to running at that point? It was um, uh, complicated. I, um, when I was in high school, getting into Harvard was hard for me. I really wanted to, in a, in a real way. Is it easy for anyone? Um, it, the getting in, I think... So for other people, I was really amazed when, like, I hadn't heard of, like, Yale or Princeton. I'd heard of Stanford. Uh-huh. Um, but I was, like, from that kind of a background where it's, like, you've heard of Harvard. Um, and right. so you, Where did you grow up? Um, in southern Rhode Island, which is the backwater that right. I'm portraying it as, at least, like, where I'm from. Like, well, you'd heard know. of Brown, probably. I'd heard of Brown, but I didn't know Come what the Ivy was. No, seriously. Yeah. Um, I just didn't. Um, and I think uh, I'm just not from that kind of background, I guess, Um where like I didn't know anyone that went to Harvard and no one from my high school had gone to Harvard. So um, I was just, I was a pretty competitive student, um, loved running, um, was always like all state-ish mm-hmm. kind of for my, my um, final years in high school and really wanted to run in high school. I mean, sorry, in college, um, but wasn't recruited anywhere. Um, and uh, got into Harvard and then I was like, whoa, I'm so scared about this, uh, which kind of makes sense if you think about it. And I was like, I'm not going to be good enough. Like, what, like, oh, this is really happening? Yeah. Well, no, just more like I've now I'm in the big leagues. Like, yeah. you've got to keep up. Um, and I was like, okay, anything I lack in talent, I'm going to make up for with discipline. Like, I've got to got to get like ready for this. Um, I was just so scared for it. And classic um, type. A. Yeah, no, totally. Yeah. Um, and so I unfortunately part of that is I was like, I'm not pulling another all nighter for for, for math anymore um, and just started like putting all that effort into running and again it's like with the Mary Kane story like 
girls, like I didn't have a coach that was telling me to lose weight, but mm-hmm. I just always felt like there was this implicit, like, you're not skinny like the other girls. And um, it was like, again, yeah, what I don't have in talent, I can do with discipline. And I think I lost like 30 pounds in three months or something, mm-hmm. 20 pounds yeah, in three months. Yeah, you posted that picture on Instagram it was like awful. before and after. Yeah, I've never, I've never been so miserable. And it was like what I thought it was always so sad to me that um, – it was a time when I should have been really excited and proud of myself, but instead um, just kind of turned it into like, what else I have to do, kind of. And I think that's something that a lot of girls face. And that's partly why Mary Kane's story is so important to me, that we need to kind of highlight some of the pressures that these girls face. Um, but that was a short lived episode for you. Yeah. The difference being there wasn't a coach lording yes. over you, yes. like affirming that or telling yes. you to you know, go even deeper into yes. that hole. Yeah, I was very lucky that that didn't happen. And I was really lucky, especially that um, when I did get to college, I was so excited that that was not the culture there um, and that the girls weren't like that. And they almost like were very anti that. And so I just very quickly changed. And I was like, I want to be like these girls. So mm-hmm. I'll be like them. They're healthy. They're happy, you know, to the extent that anyone at that school is. And um, yeah, I just changed. So, right. but I think it's, I think it's also, it was good to get that out of my system and not wonder like, do I need to work harder? Uh-huh. So then what was your career like in college? Athletically? Yeah. Um, I just wasn't good. Um, and I mean, the Ivy League is really competitive for distance running. I was varsity my freshman year. Um, and after that, I just kind of went through the cycle of injuries. I got yeah. a stress fracture in my back, um, like in my SI joint into sophomore year. Couldn't walk. It was just like, what is this sport that I thought was so great for me. Um, Why is it hurting me now? Like, why is it ruining the rest of my life? And I was kind of going through that. I think a lot of people, you know, if you do come out the other end, you have a complicated relationship with running at some point. And I definitely did. And I think you probably lose a lot of the sport probably loses a lot of people in that period. And so Mm -hmm. I wasn't competitive then. But it was almost like the system was just so I think I just needed to like be done with it and needed to do it on my own terms. And that's what moving to New York was for me. So so did you run all four years, though? Um, I ran until – so freshman year was the only year I ran seriously. Sophomore year, I was completely injured. Junior year, I ran. And then senior year, I ran cross-country and then um, did my thesis for uh-huh. the rest of it. But then when you moved to New York, you picked it right back up. So it wasn't like, oh, I, was I had always to a walk away from this team. for yeah. years and then, like, kind of rediscover it later. Yeah, no, I was all, I've always – run um but definitely not not in the way that a lot of other women my at my level run which is yeah. much more consistently and uh <laughs> rigorously know. i think you're being hard that's that type a thing again <laughs> yeah, like yeah, yeah. i think the reality of that might be a little bit yeah. different from your perception yeah um can always be our biggest critics but then you move to new york and and you kind of discover this community yeah. Right, that like you know rejiggers your relationship to the sport yeah and i think for me what i've also loved about running for me has always kind of been at times it's been about control, but at other times it's been just totally about freedom and about like being able to do whatever I want, however I want to do it. And I love that as opposed to, you know, the teams that I've been on where you're really supposed to do things a certain way here. And I think Casey's actually a lot like this. It's like, I can just do whatever I want, whenever right. I want from a running perspective. Like, Which I'm is not, why he keeps getting injured and I keep telling well, him he's going to yeah. change what he's doing. Yeah, anyway, I mean, that's also ahead. true. But um, <laughs> but I've always really liked that about him specifically with, with regard to how he approaches running in New York. And I sort of do too, uh-huh. where it's like, I run with my team when I want to run with my team. I back off when I don't want to run. Um, I run a lot when I really want to achieve something. Other than that, I'm just like generally running. 
Um, yeah. uh, and other times I'm not. It's like I can just do whatever I want because I'm not a professional runner and literally no one cares. Right. Except right now when you miss one workout. <laughs> well, yeah, well, right out. now I'm serious yeah. about it, right? <laughs> yeah. um, but you can't be like that. I think that's also a really healthy thing that running teaches you is that I'm actually struggling with this at work right now because I feel like I'm just working all the time and running all the time. Mm. Um but it's that you go really hard and then you back off. Um, and I love that about distance running. I uh-huh. love being able to measure your life in those cycles um, and having these buildups and then a come down and then a break and yeah. then you build up again. And it's like um, what I don't like is when the buildups that I come up with are interrupted by other, yeah. <laughs> other factors. But it's got to be cool now because of what you do professionally that you can like hang out with all these amazing women runners, right? Like yeah. you get to like run with your heroes and yeah, like I try be part to, of that community. I try not to look at it like that. I think I think as soon as you become too much of a fan, you you kind of lose track of what you're doing right. and having But a you little... did write an article called the Shalane effect. Yeah, but it, I don't think that was um I don't think that was a fan article. I think that was, and I have a lot, I think that was a, I really respect what this woman is doing and what she means for the sport. It wasn't like a Shalane Flanagan, please be friends with me article. Uh-huh. Um, and I think that's, I think that's a really important distinction actually is to not, um, not want athletes to like you, but yeah. just to kind of pay attention and try to see them in a, in a way that is actually very serious and almost like, critical in a positive way. Right. Um, but I, I didn't look at it as a, um, as a, I love this woman. Um, it was more like, I look at this woman the way that I looked at the team captains in college and have deep, deep respect for what she's mm-hmm. doing um, and almost treat her like a CEO. Yeah, I get it. I mean, that's the difference between journalism and being a podcaster because I can like fawn yeah, over. I can see that. I can yeah. fawn over whoever I want to. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I do try to kind of um, be as, as uh, uh, objective as possible. And I I did think that was an objective article. Of course. Um, I can't help like, you know, I'm in the, I'm here, we're here in the New York Times. I've never been in the New York Times before. (laughs) It's impossible for me to like walk these hallways and kind of look at what everyone's doing Mm -hmm. without thinking about the current climate of journalism Mm -hmm. in this era of, you know, quote unquote, fake news and, the New York Times is the corrupt and like, you know, all of that kind of stuff. So that that is just percolating in our, mm-hmm. you know, kind of political climate. Um, what is the experience of actually working here? And what is the, you know, how do you, like you and your colleagues here kind of deal with all of that? You mean being in, <laughs> being a national pariah? Yeah, oh, being sort of being like the locus of that particular. Yeah, yeah. That's been an interesting evolution because when I started here in 2008, I was joining an institution that I had always wanted to be a part of and that in particular I really wanted to approach as a place that I could help change like in whatever small ways that I could and I think I've definitely accomplished that both through OpDocs like now through the work that I've done in opinion journalism Um, and in particular at this point like how I am approaching female um, athletes. I think that it's been a really astonishing um, transition professionally to suddenly working for, um, you know, an institution that I've always considered to do really, really honorable work um, that is sort of more, you know, viewed by some people now as an enemy of the state, which which it's obviously not. Um, I think it's, it's really um, kind of redoubled my commitment to the mission. Um, And in particular, I think it's, it's, um, 
helped me to kind of see more of a purpose and especially the work that I'm doing Mm -hmm. around female athletes. We're in a, in the midst of a very, very important cultural conversation right now. And I think, um, in some ways my professional experience has mirrored some of the women that I, that I write about in terms of, you know, not always feeling like I have the seat at the table that, um, that, you know, might go to someone who's a more like usual suspect, um, uh, like in sports reporting, for example, and kind of showing like, like the, again, like, the rules that we thought were the rules or like the ways that we think things are, are actually different now. I think the times is trying to help drive that conversation that the culture is having partly in response to um, the upheaval that we're in right now. Yeah. I mean, it's gotta be annoying. What do you mean? Just the idea that people are saying that uh, the, the fact that there's like arrows being slung at the New York times, like this, the pinnacle, you know, this sort of the, the gold standard of journalism. I don't know. I mean, I, I've had some friends who, you know, I think that they are, um, they perhaps had more personal um, risk when during the election that they were taking on, yeah. you know, by having Trump come to come to power. But um, I did have conversations with them at the time where I thought if if um, if the election does go that way, we need to have that information. Um uh, we need to know that this is where the country is right now. Um, and perhaps during the years before that, we were certain people, not every not every person, but certain people were able to overlook that. And I think these conversations are being forced now. Yeah. And there is going to be some pain around that. There is like, do I like that our bathroom now is lockable for in the case of an active shooter? Um, no, I would hope that I'll make it in there first, mm-hmm. you know, before someone locks the door. Um, like, do I like that we're having active shooter drills now and you know that the, the security is where it is no of course not but at the same time i think that you know stability doesn't usually lead to change yeah. um volatility does disruption does yeah. and so i guess you can try to see it um that way right um even though even though it's difficult and it's painful and i i know other people are having even more of a painful time than i am so i'm really thinking about them not me yeah um i would imagine you're you probably can't talk about stories that you're actively working on right now. Um, but what what are maybe some of the stories that you would like to see told that you're not working on or things that you're seeing out in the culture that are interesting and you feel like could use a little bit of a nudge or a, or a, or a brighter light? Um, I mean, I, I have a never-ending cache of stories, particularly around women's sports right now. I'm dying to do more. I just need the opportunity to do more on you should um, broaden it outside of of running and track and field though because yeah. so many of these issues are are so relevant in other sports well i actually think that's i think um i think it's actually gonna be really good to go narrow at first mm. um especially when you know something narrowly really really well because that's um that's creating this really broad conversation mm-hmm. um that i think is extending outside of in a world track. that you really understand yeah, yeah i think but that being said the next thing that we are going to do is um I don't mind saying it. It's um, about coaching, and I am obsessed with the idea of um, the idea that Title IX led to um, uh, it put more money in women's sports. And so, ironically, men took all the jobs. Like before Title IX, girls yeah. were coached by women because there wasn't any money. And then right. after Title IX, um, 
there was money. And so now it's like less than 50% of women's teams are coached by women. And I mean, obviously, I men's, men's wow. teams are coached by men. Yeah. So I'm hoping wow. that the amazing treatment that we're going to give this um, this piece is going to really get people excited about that idea. Mm-hmm. And it's just so, it's such a paltry ask to change that. Um, that I mean, this is like just in the NCAA. Yeah. So I just want to work on that. What's your perspective on the shifting landscape around compensation for NC2A amateur athletes? I think it's a positive thing. Yeah. I mean, you did again, that thing with the the, Caitlin Ohashi. the gymnast. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think with all of these things, these systems are all built in a way that favors men. Like the the only reason that people are even talking about that is because of football players and basketball players. Yeah. But obviously that favors women. Women rarely have a lucrative professional league to go on to in the first place. So if they do manage to break through like Caitlin did in college, it's only fair that you let them uh, make money off of that at the time. Yeah, Um, so she did some crazy floor routine, right? And the video went, crazy viral. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. She said like 100 million views or something like that. Yeah, it was really, really widely watched and she Uh just looked so joyful and I think that's what's so sad about it is that you're like, you're watching someone do something so great and they're not being paid for it. And um, I think that happens a lot. I think it especially happens to women and... um, I, it's it's very it's I think women more often are told you know I I write stuff sometimes and people are like oh did you have fun mm-hmm. and I'm like well I did have fun but I also didn't get paid for it and yeah. it's it's sad it's insane so now we have Gavin Newsom with this new yeah. fair fair play to pay fair fair play to pay, pay to play pay to play act um, which is lining up to you know now it's setting the stage for perhaps a battle with the NC2A it's going to be interesting to see how this evolves yeah. I, everyone always says it's like Nike, right? Everyone always says never underestimate their lack of willingness to yeah. be bossed around and to change. Um, uh, I'm inclined to think the public perception is so in favor of the athletes right now that it's um, that it will be upheld. Right. But I, I, I also do not underestimate the NCAA's eagerness to um, to undermine it to the extent possible. But I think it's an inevitable eventuality, kind of like legalizing marijuana like the the cultural tide has shifted on this one and whether it takes a year or five years to get that done i see it happening no matter what yeah i mean i would have to blow out this analogy but i think it's a little similar to before what like again all of these systems were built for wealthy white men um and college sports existed because wealthy white women were going to them and they were amateurs right like the, if you look up amateur athletics, the first hit you get is like a Harvard Crimson article um, from like back in the late 1800s. Mm. It's like that's what that's what amateur athletics was. And that's also why the Olympics was um, why you couldn't make money if you were an Olympian for a really long time. Again, this was for like gentlemen athletes. Um, yeah. This is not for poorer people who are using these sports to make money and ideally to um, catalyze their lives through these sports and to economically catalyze their lives. And um and the reasons the systems are resisting that is because people don't like the idea of the sport itself changing, not because they, um, not because they're actually engaging with the fairness of what would be best for the athletes that are currently dealing with the currently suffering yeah. from the ramifications of these decisions. What are some of the other big changes that you would like to see in women's sports? Um. Yeah, I have to think about that. I mean, I think right now the biggest thing that I'm obsessed with is. 
about the idea that everyone wants girls and women to participate, but when women really run into problems, and again, this is why I think you can talk about track, but this is everywhere. This is in soccer. Like this is mm-hmm. in sports. This is like yeah, I'm thinking of in Megan government Rapino right now. Yeah, um, yeah, I think it's that. Um, like I, I was so upset watching the women's um, women's national team in the World Cup this year because I was in high school when Brandy Chastain had that amazing picture on Time magazine, right. and of course it was like on the cover of Newsweek at my parents' house. It was like girls' rule. It's like okay, we'll overlook that this is a thirty-something-year-old woman, um, like, and that you're calling her a girl on the cover of Newsweek. Um, but it really kills me that. I remember watching that, and this was when I was back in high school, and I wasn't necessarily on a path where I was going to necessarily be successful just by default. Like, I was needing to do that for myself, but people were saying, you can do whatever you want. And what bothers me is that that was true until you become an adult and a woman, and you're working, and you want to be paid for it. Mm-hmm. Even now, in my How case, dare you? yeah, I can still do whatever I want. I can do all these stories. It's when I want to be paid for it um, and actually, like, have this be my job. That's when you run into trouble. And I think that's what bothers me so much about watching um, the women's national team is they are having to work twice as hard. They're having to work two different jobs um, and be perfect at it in order to even make the case for equality in terms of wage. And even then, it's only equality. And that's exactly the same thing that I've experienced in my life and in my career. And I can't stand that this is unfolding for all of these good girls. Um, like, again, we are telling this to like girls all around the country, like work really hard and then like it'll all mm-hmm. pay off for you. And that's not the truth. And that, yeah. d- that kills well, me. Well, there's this crevasse between the marketing images or the marketing messages versus the reality behind the scenes of what's actually going on. Yeah, yeah. It's like, careers. again, it's, you can tell girls that they can do anything. I mean, like even when I was in college, it was, amazing. Um, Harvard was not a resource-constrained environment, and so they made sure everything was equal because we weren't fighting over resources. We weren't trying to get I wasn't trying to get more of a wage than my male peers. It's only when you start to get into the workplace that girls start to experience this. And that's the same in professional sports. Girls Mm. do not have, women do not have the same resources and they have to make the case of, they have to, they have to be perfect in order to get what they deserve. It kills me. Yeah. Um, We got to round this out in a few minutes, but I'm interested in, in your thoughts on what, what makes for a great journalist? Like, what do you think are the qualities that are that are most important in in telling meaningful stories? Um, I think a, a curiosity is really important. Um, being interested in figuring out that what someone tells you isn't the whole story, generally speaking. Uh-huh. Um, kind of asking questions. Like, I think that's where equal play has been really interesting. Is coming up with people, what people don't know and what they're not thinking of, and telling that story. Um, uh, that's I think that's important from a journalist perspective. It's almost like not being so it's almost like why your question about like, do I want to be friends with these athletes? Like, not really. I want to know them and know mm. what they're doing, not not necessarily like like them so much that I can't, you know, be objective anymore. Yeah. Um, and I think that's a really important distinction for a journalist, like figuring out what the questions that aren't being asked and getting to the bottom of those. And then also being independent and kind of like self-driven enough that you're not um, changing the story to make other people happy. You're telling the truth. Yeah. And I think in terms of your career trajectory, you just seem like somebody who who worked really hard, but was very intent on making sure that you seized on whatever small opportunities came your way to turn them into larger opportunities. Yeah. I mean, I think for myself, and this goes way beyond being a journalist, um, I've always benefited from kind of like being entrepreneurial about things and um, taking 
you know, taking one thing and thinking like, okay, well, I have this one story. How can I make this like the most read story on the New York uh-huh. Times, even though like I did that with like a shot putter article. I like, I yeah. um, asked Matt Futterman if I could write this article about like shot putters because I'd always thought about how like when we were on the on the bus in college, like the shot putters were in the back, almost living like a totally different life from us, like kind of like going crazy. And they were so fun. And we were like right. studying in the front, like the distance runners. And like, I was who like, who are these shot put people? Yeah. And I was like, but again, like they were really <laughs> smart too, um, uh-huh. like just in a different way. And I wanted, I was like, I wanted to revisit that older, like in a different stage of life and see like, who are the ones that became the pros and what are they like? And uh-huh. it did not disappoint. But yeah. I was like, I just want to, I want to see like, how can I, um, get people excited about something that they would never think about otherwise. And I think that's always been, yeah. that's always been my creative challenge as a, um, again, it's not like a job anyone told me to do, but I find it really, really fun yeah, and well, satisfying. following your curiosity. I mean, I think what's been interesting for me, just, <laughs> just sort of paying attention to sports coverage on the New York Times, like I was somebody, and I've heard you say this before, like even though I was an athlete, I, I don't really care that much about football, baseball, and basketball. Mm-hmm. And, and so I just never read the sports page. Yeah. Like, it just didn't interest Same, me. And yeah. it wasn't covering the sports that yeah. I cared about anyway. Um, it never occurred to me to, like, oh, we got to check the sports page. Yeah, and never um, read it. Which it is why I don't bland. care. It was just bland. It like, whatever. But, and that's why I don't care where my work shows up now. Yeah. I'm like, it whether it's like, sh- what section it ends yeah, up. Yeah, like the sports matter. page can be the sports page and I can do what I'm doing. But I think what's cool is that there has been a really kind of unique you know, original flair to what the New York New York Times has done with their sports coverage. And, you know, I'm sure Matt is in, you know, large part to be credited for this, like with really interesting long form stuff, like the way that that um, the Times covered Colin O'Brady's Antarctica crossing, which mm-hmm. was written by my friend Adam Skolnick. Like I thought oh, it was cool. so compelling and interesting and dynamic with with, you know, just the the visual layout of it and everything it was just made it made made like makes these stories come alive in a very human interest way mm-hmm. that transcends just, you know, stats and scores and who won the game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think everyone here at the Times um, would agree that that's what the true um, true A-plus sports stories are right yeah. now. Um, it's it, They're hard to pull off, but when you do, it's like, it's it's amazing. And I think really at its core, sports is about limits, like human limits and, and really pursuing those, which is why I think there is this opportunity to refocus American interest on endurance sports in a way yeah. that it's sort of waned in recent years. It's not all, just about games all the time. It's about, you know, like rigorous pursuit um, and pushing of, of limits, of human limits. And I think there's a, there with that, you get, this this like a quickening of the emotional connection between the reader and the subject, right? Like mm-hmm. through you can you can see some aspect of yourself and your potential through the experience of whatever this person is tackling. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, absolutely. Which I think is cool. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, the last thing I want to ask you about is is um, has to do with resources available to somebody who's listening to this, who finds themselves in that precarious kind of coach athlete situation. Like if there's a young woman who's participating in college sports and is, you know, under the thumb of, you know, the kind of coach that we've been talking about or finds themselves with a dysfunctional, you know, relationship with their, with their body or with food or what have you, um, what are some like resources or, or places that they can go for help? Um, I don't know. Uh, there's a safe sports initiative at sort of the higher levels of the sport. Um, in the, in the NCAA, I think, um, 
your college athletics administrator would have to care. Yeah. Like I, I would be astonished if, especially after this recent, this recent conversation that we've had, that someone would turn a blind eye to you. Um, if you're younger, your parents should care. Um, yeah. and I, I, but I think just arming yourself with the medical science, which is just so readily available, is your first line of defense. Mm. I think that's what's really helped me. Like I knew something was wrong with myself, and I, the like, kind of reading about the science made me um, sure that it was true. Also, just going to a doctor if you're an athlete, like a doctor will always back you up. Yeah. Well, also just speaking your, you know, using your voice. Like yeah. if something's not right, like. You know, I think you've 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 given permission to a lot of people to yeah. use that voice, yeah, and 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 shifted culture such that that voice will be heard and taken seriously. Yeah, and to believe themselves if they think something's wrong. I think again, I've fallen into this trap. I think a lot of really driven, especially girls who are obedient, they're really good. I think they fall into this trap. You think that hurting yourself is part of what you have to do to be good, and that's not true. And I think if anything that's come out of this conversation. Um, you know, around this stuff in recent days, if anything comes out of that, I hope it's that, that like, yeah. that you can excel without hurting yourself. Yeah. Well, it's been a pleasure talking to you. No, oh, thanks. Um, keep doing what you're doing, please. Like it's incredible. What you're doing is incredible. And your name comes up time and time again on the podcast. Like oh. I'm always like pointing to the work that you're doing. I think it's really important. Um, and it's very impactful. And uh, so I just wanted to like publicly acknowledge you for that. Like it's 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 been super. I'm not I'm not a woman athlete, and I'm like emotional about the work that you do. Like I really do think it's 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 an amazing thing. So thank you for that service and and wind in your sails. Thank and you. 244, and thank you for sharing it. Two forty four in a couple God, of weeks. At least two forty nine, <laughs> right? Yeah. yeah. But thank you. I, I appreciate that, and um, I I really appreciate you sharing it because I definitely wouldn't still yeah. be doing it if people weren't paying attention. So yeah. it's great. All right. Well, thanks so much. So if people. Um, want to connect with you. I mean, they can just, they can find all your articles in, on the New York Times and your Lindsey Krause on Twitter and Instagram, yeah. right? Yeah. Anywhere else? I don't, not that no. I know. <laughs> Hopefully <laughs> yeah. not. When are you going to uh, write a book? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. Um, when I, in my sleep. In your sleep, um, yeah. yeah. Um, After yeah. you qualify for Olympic trials. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then right. I'll take a rest and yeah, then, we'll, cool. then we'll do something else. All, all right, right. Well, thank you. All right. Thanks so much. Yeah. And if you come to LA, well, uh, I'll get Casey and we'll all go running together. That would be amazing. Right, I would love that. Let's do that. Yeah. Thanks. Okay. Next time. Peace. So that happened. We did that. I think it was pretty powerful stuff. Hope you guys enjoyed it. Please be sure to check out the show notes on the episode page to learn more about Lindsay and the great work that she is doing and uh, show her some love on the socials. You can find her on Twitter and Instagram at Lindsay Kraus, L-I-N-D-S-A-Y Kraus, C-R-O-U-S-E. Of course, you can find her work in the New York Times, and I'll put links to a lot of her pieces that we discussed today in the show notes. If you'd like to support the work we do here on the show, subscribe, rate, and comment on the show on Apple Podcasts. Uh, share the show on social media. Tell your friends about it. Subscribe to my YouTube channel, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and you can support us on Patreon at richroll.com forward slash donate. I want to thank everybody who helped put on the show today, Jason Camiolo for audio engineering, production, show notes, and interstitial music. Blake Curtis and Margot Lubin for videoing and editing the video version of the podcast, although that did not happen today because I did this one in New York City uh, without Blake and Margot, so no video today. In any event, Jessica Miranda for graphics, Allie Rogers for portraits typically, but not today again, because she wasn't with me in New York City. 
DK, David Kahn for Advertiser Relationships and Theme Music as always by Analemma. Appreciate the love you guys. See you back here in a couple days with the phenomenal Ricky Gates, ultra runner, artist, performance artist, writer, filmmaker, photographer. This guy does it all. Uh, truly a beautiful human. And uh, here's a clip to take you out. Until then, peace, lads. Namaste. I think the Appalachian Trail is awesome. Like, there's no doubt about it. But like, you're going to learn a lot about yourself. Mm -hmm. And you're going to learn a lot about trail culture. But how much are you really going to learn about the United States in this greater context? It's, it's a form of escapism. And that's sometimes exactly what we need is to escape uh, what's going on outside of our front door. But for me personally, like I needed to explore something a lot deeper than just myself and just the physical capabilities of something like that. So, I mean, I don't know what the benefit is, um, but I know that there is a benefit to stepping outside of our comfort zones and looking people in the eye. And, and I think it works both directions. I think that it uh, makes those people feel more human. You know, when you're sleeping on the street in the middle of uh, downtown L.A., mm -hmm. you, you can feel less and less like a human. And it makes you and me feel more human as well and tap into this empathy that I think can go a really long way in our yeah. in this time in our society and um, something that perhaps we're losing a little bit and, and it's a good way to, to kind of gain it back a little. <laughs> <laughs>